Hello, everyone. Welcome. Good evening to those of you joining us across uh, the pond in the UK. Good afternoon to those of you joining us on the East Coast um, um, and West Coast as well. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ethan Marcus. I'm the Managing Director for the Sephardic Jewish Brotherhood of America, the national umbrella organization for the Latino-speaking Sephardic communities of the United States. It's really such an honor and pleasure in doing this program here today in partnership with the new Habura, um, a brand new initiative from the S&P Sephardi community under the guise of uh, Senior Rabbi Joseph Dweck and his other students, including our dear friend, Sina Kahan. Uh, just as a reminder, this is a partnership initiative with the Hapua, who what's called the Sephardic Digital Academy, an online digital academy similar to the Hapua, more broadly speaking, focusing on not only Sephardic Torah and Halakha and Sephardic philosophy perspectives, but also Sephardic cooking, Sephardic history, Latino language and culture, and so much more. If you're interested in learning more about the Sephardic Digital Academy or even sponsoring a future class or program in honor or memory of someone, please check out our website at SephardicBrotherhood.com slash Sephardic Digital Academy to learn more about all other wonderful programs, including programs like this one. So today we have a very special three-part series beginning on Sephardic responsa for the Milan world with three wonderful students of the Habura. First today we have our dear friend, Matthew Miller, a student of the Habura, who today we'll be talking about Rav Benzion Merchai Uziel, blessed memory, the former Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel. Just a few uh, notes about Matthew. He completed his BA in Jewish Studies and Linguistics at McGill University and an MA in Hebrew Linguistics at Queen Mary University of London. He also studied at Yeshivat Yesodei HaTorah. Matthew is a global citizen, having lived in over six cities and four countries, and he currently lives with his wife, Georgia, in Chicago. Without further ado, I'm going to pass over the floor to Matthew to begin the uh, awesome shiur. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for the introduction. Thank you to all organizations involved, the Synod, to everyone, really. I really appreciate it. I'll just, one thing I'll add, actually, is that um, the introduction, the, the text of the introduction is slightly old. We actually just had a daughter, um, May 26th. So um, I want to mention that really a uh, great opportunity to, for me personally to dedicate this year um, for her. Um, but obviously, you know, uh, without further ado, we can really jump in. I'm just going to share some slides. And I think as far as I understood, this would be an all-night program. No, I'm joking. It'll be about 50 minutes in terms of the actual presentation. And then hopefully about 10 minutes or so that we can, I can try to answer as many questions as possible. And would love for, you know, if I can't answer the question to have a continued conversation for me to learn more, to, to see that what we can come up with in terms of answers for anything that I can't quite figure out on the spot. Um, so I'll just share my screen now. Um, Okay. All right, and I assume this can be seen okay by everyone? Yep. Great. So, so here we're going to look at, at Rev um, Uziel, um, one of his tissue both, which actually is the first one in his Mishpate um, Uziel. And um, he has actually the first three are addressed um, to the topic of pronunciation in Hebrew. Um, we'll focus on the first. There'll be a few choice quotes from some of the other ones. And I titled it Pronunciation, Politics, and People, because I think that if we look at this Tishava as well as really the whole topic of pronunciation, it's all about people because people speak languages. I'm in some ways trained as a Chomskyan linguist, which to some degree, he takes out the people from the equation. Um, it's been some of the pushback from his school of linguistics. But nonetheless, I think from an intuitive perspective, we know that people speak languages. And therefore, there's, there's going to be sometimes 
difficulties in terms of the way people speak and um, in terms of halakha, in terms of trying to ascertain what is the best way to speak, what is the best pronunciation, and then of course that will get into certain political issues in terms of Zionism, people's return to Israel, adopting a certain pronunciation, how does that relate to halakha in terms of pronouncing things properly, certainly in regards to the Shema, but also in, in general in terms of Briyat um, Torah, in terms of Tefillah, so all these things are really all about pronunciation, politics, and people. And if we look at the just a really brief biography of, of um, Rav Uziel, he was born um, in 1880, and um, he was born from a rabbinic family. And in 1911, he's appointed to the Acham Bashi of, of Jaffa, and he had a close relation with Rav Cook. We'll speak briefly in terms of some of his discussions with Rav Cook on this front in terms of pronunciation, but it, it should be known certainly that he worked alongside Rav Cook already in Jaffa. And in 1921, he went off to Thessalonica, um, which at the time, don't know the exact size, but certainly from, from yesteryears, it was a very, very large Jewish community, um, no, no longer as large as it once was, but certainly it was in its heyday, really one of the largest, I think, um, Jewish communities, um, certainly in its area, but I think really world over, such a really great Jewish community. In 1923, he returned to Israel, became chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. He'd be there um, over 15 years, and then he'd be appointed chief rabbi of Mandate Palestine. Um, I should say as well, if I didn't mention the beginning, in terms of questions, I think for timing, we'll save them to the end. Uh, you know, certainly throw anything in the chat um, that comes to mind, and then we can go through and see what, what we get to. Um, in terms of Uziel, this is actually from a different um, Teshuvah of his, and the translation comes from um, Rabbi Jonathan Zuring in Toronto. And I'd say some of the translations I've, I've taken from um, Rabbi Hidari, I've taken some from Rabbi Zuring. Um, and I think as well, there might have, I think that's it. Um, but in terms of this particular quote, so it's from a different Teshuvah, but I think it speaks very well to one of his main goals in terms of what he's trying to do as a religious leader and as a posek, as someone who's trying to decide the halakha, it's all about unity. Um, so of course there's core halakhic texts, there's core halakhic principles, which one must abide by, but all in all, there's an abiding, a very important principle for him, which is the unity of Jewish people. He says, among all the virtues that distinguish and separate Israel from all the nations, first and foremost is, this is the kicker, the wonderful union of this nation in its Torah, which is the foundation of its nationality and the secret of its eternal existence. So the people, its unity, its unity with the Torah, Torah's unity, all these things we are commanded to maintain and emphasize in all our situations and work for the rock of our salvation to create unity with Israel and Torah. So, you know, um, we think of the, the Zohara quote in terms of that the Jewish people and the Torah and God have some sort of unity. So we don't need to get into the metaphysics of what that means, what that could symbolize. But certainly for him, there is some sort of unity, both from a national perspective as well as from a religious perspective. And we'll see here, this is going to certainly flavor the discussion that, that he has. And it's going to be something which is he'll be working with as an operating principle in terms of this particular responsum, or let's say these particular line of response in terms of numbers one through three. And I think it's a perennial sort of thing that he addresses and something which is core to, to his halakhic decision making. And I think if we zoom out very briefly, I think that one question which I'd want to think about and I think we should all be thinking about is what, what are some of the other operating principles? We won't really get too much into this, but I think it's something that, that I'm always fascinated by. You know, Is there something, for example, of religious Zionist halakha. So for example, one of my teachers, Rabbi Shlomo Brody from Tikva, he has spoken about and written about extensively this notion of religious Zionist halakha. So as we'll see, Rabbi, um, Rabbi Uziel 
sees as a very important principle, as an operating principle, as something which she's very fond of and in favor of for, is the establishment of State of Israel, the Zionist project, the people coming back to land and establishing some form of government. So that's something which is important for him. And so it's not to say that he distorts, God forbid, the halakha in order to fit that, but it's something which is a principle. And, and as we know, in terms of halakhic decision-making, principles are, are, are key. There's, there's sources and there's principles, and we need to work with them, work with them together, and try to understand how to build a case based on these sorts of things. So other issues which come up, which we won't be addressing head on, but things that also um, Rabbi Uziel and others discuss around this broader topic of religious Zionist halakha, is for example, autopsies. So the Hebrew University, it took a long time for it to get off the ground because of the issue of autopsy. How can you do an autopsy according to halakha? What about Kabod Hamed, for example? How can you do that? So discussions around that, discussions around milking cows on Shabbat, you know, in terms of, is that something which is allowed? Because typically it's, it's an issue, there are issues involved. So can you do it? Should you do it? How can a country run if you're gonna totally stop milking cows on Shabbat, the land in terms of Shemitah? All these different things, conversion, um, Rabbi uh, Mark Angel has a great essay in his book, um, Seeking God, Speaking Peace, where he discusses a, a number of these issues between, in specific, actually, Rabbi Uziel and Rabbi Kuk. And I think these are just some of the things we should think about. And so one of these core issues is about pronunciation. So I'd, I'd say that just to, as a, a jumping off point, just something to think about, these are some of the really interesting um, sources which I looked at, and I only really touched very briefly in terms of some of these different sources, but nonetheless, they, they inform some of my thinking and really help enlighten me in terms of this topic and its broader sort of um, implications. So there's a great book, um, actually I was discussing it with uh, Sina earlier, but German Jewry and the Allure of the Sephardic. And so one of the things which is discussed there is this notion of adopting a Sephardic style, let's say pronunciation, um, all the way back from the Maskilim and then going forward in terms of the establishment of an Israeli pronunciation. So as, as we know, there are certain things aren't quite standard Sephardic. So a lot of the gutturals are not gonna be present in your average modern uh, Hebrew pronunciation, but nonetheless, this is the Sephardic style is something which people thought was something that should be adopted. So from a halachic perspective, is that appropriate? That's what we'll be addressing here. The Politics of Pronunciation by Isaac Gottlieb, really fundamental work here. So it addresses Rabbi Uziel as well as Rabbi Weiss from the Eda Haridit, uh, discusses Rav Kook as well. It discusses some of the other about there. I think Rav Herzog has some discussions here as well. So that's, I'd really recommend people take a look at that. It's, it's the, I'd say probably the fundamental topic and essay on this topic. Um, as I mentioned, Rabbi Angel's um, essay. And then, as I mentioned as well, um, Rabbi Hidri has, has an article, um, really a source sheet, perhaps an article as well, addressing some of these topics in terms of the topic of, of Jewish unity, addressing pronunciation, as well as other issues and topics as well. Um, in terms, and, and so this is, we don't need to actually really go in depth into this quote, but I'll just put it up here briefly. Um, so for example, what, one of the, um, the masculine in the school of, of Mendelssohn, so he discusses that this, um, this longing and yearning for a Sephardic sort of, sort of pronunciation, something which is, is different, something which for him in his Ashkenazic milieu, which was foreign, different, but it's something which he thought was the right sort of thing to adopt. Um, there's all sorts of underlying issues that we won't address here in terms of that, you know, certain um, disdain or disgust for Yiddish, for example, for some of them in terms of trying to move away from any sort of sound system, which would be related to that Ashkenazic language that they're speaking. So there, there's all sorts of things at play. But I think for, for this particular discussion, we'll take for granted that there has been this type of pronunciation adopted within the 
modern Israeli speaking population and the modern Hebrew speaking population within Israel, though some would call it actually Israeli, again, another topic to be discussed, but that's the pronunciation. So what is the halakhic import and implication of that? Should it be adopted in terms of that pronunciation? Should it not? What if one does? Is that an issue? Must they change? Can they? So there's all sorts of things that come into play in terms of that. So the response, as we said, is really the first response in his Mishpateu Ziel. The second and third as well address this topic, um, goes into issues of, um, is this an issue of Altatos Mitarathi Mecha, which Rav Kook thinks is really an issue in terms of, sway, of, of going away from the teachings of one's ancestors. Because if one has adopted um, a certain pronunciation from their ancestors, is it appropriate to move away from that and to adopt a different pronunciation, in this case, modern Israeli. I'll speak just anecdotally, anecdotally very briefly. Um, my own background is, is Ashkenazi. Um, some have said I look um, Sephardi, um, which I guess I think is probably a compliment. But my background is Ashkenazi. Uh, my ancestors come from Poland. They come from Russia. And their pronunciation, I don't know the exact pronunciation, but some form of Ashkenazi pronunciation. Uh, when I grew up, we adopted a Israeli-style um, conservative sort of pronunciation. And for all sorts of communal reasons and um, perhaps political reasons to some degree, I went and adopted and let's say reverted in some historical sense to my Ashkenazi roots and adopted that pronunciation. And so is that a good thing to do? Was that right? We're not going to, of course, get into my particular case, but I think that for me, this is really a very relevant topic in terms of, of, of community, in terms of unity, in terms of uniformity, because Unity and uniformity are, are, are two things which are come um, into discussion within Judaism or within Halakha in terms of unity, everyone doing the same thing um, or everyone being together versus uniformity, everyone doing the same thing. Um, so those are sometimes the same, but sometimes different. And so I think that the, the, the core of, of what's coming out of that is that there's real serious communal affiliations which one actually um, enacts by adopting certain pronunciations. So there's certain, let's say, communal affiliations, certain political affiliations. There's a lot at stake, I think, which is what I'm, I'm trying to say here. And so Rabbi Uziel addresses this topic and he addresses things in terms of, you know, should, must one be particular in terms of the gutturals, as we said, in terms of the modern Israeli pronunciation, they've largely um, gotten rid of, or it's not part of, of their phonology in terms of gutturals. So, you know, no ayin, no het. Um, hey, as well, is really not part of, of for the most part, part of their um, phonology. Um, and so, you know, is that something which can be sanctioned um, or, or is it totally a um, non-starter that, that one cannot actually adopt such a pronunciation? Um, issues in terms, and this is really a core issue in terms of the shemab and, and um, in terms of putting space between words. So that's not really the what's happening in terms of modern language and modern pronunciation, but that, as we'll see, is going to be one of those sources in terms of addressing the topic. And then there's going to be the issue, as you mentioned, in terms of all changing one's pronunciation from one's ancestors and adopting a pronunciation of the country and of a unified pronunciation of the modern state of Israel. And then the corollary, perhaps, of all these things is, OK, let's say for an individual, this is, is to be sanctioned either or is that going to be something which is OK for shliach tzibur? Um, the other core issues, which we won't be addressing, but there, there, there are issues in terms of, um, and I, I, I don't actually think that Rabbi Uziel addressed it here, but for example, let's say you're Shlich Tzibur of another community who has a different pronunciation, is it okay to adopt it? Um, issues in terms of um, other sorts of issues, but the, I think these are some of the core issues and we'll try to get to as many as we can. 
Um, so one of the things, as we said, there's this notion of, of Zionism, of people, and there's all sorts of different types of Zionism, Zionisms, all sorts of different ways people interact and react to the Zionist enterprise. But I think fundamentally speaking, at least, a core part of, of that enterprise is a return to the land of Israel, a return to the land and an establishment of some form of government and some form of unified something, you know, whether that's unified practice to some degree. So Rav Gorin, for example, was very much into trying to adopt the unified practice. Um, Rav Ovadia Yosef, to some degree, again, was trying to adopt an, um, some form of unified practice in the land. But there's something in terms of everyone getting together, which will have some, some sort of meaning, you know, whether it's a deep religious meaning, whether it's just a total political meaning, but it's got some sort of meaning. And I think if, if we look at what exactly this means, I think that if we look at what Rav Uziel says, we, we can really pick up on, on some, some core principles that he's laying down and some core um, stances that he's taking, even if it's very subtle or less than subtle. So he says um, that the immigration of diaspora Jews to the land of Israel, which is brought about by God's grace upon us, so a positive reflection of this particular movement in our generation, the Renaissance Hebrew language, as a spoken language, Jewish people in the land of Israel, a people divided into many diaspora languages, pronunciations, even in the Torah language, raised a very important halachic issue about unifying the language and its pronunciation. So there's some form of unity which is going on here. Again, as we said before, and as is expressed in a number of, of his different responsa, unity is, is a good thing. And so therefore, there's this notion of unity. So now what? Can we adopt a unified, uniform practice in terms of pronunciation, or is that verboten to some degree? When this question had to be resolved for educational institutions, he says, and for the man on the street, it was resolved with no difficulty, with the acceptance of the Sephardi pronunciation, with minor variations as language, everyday speech, and learning. So in terms of just the general government, in terms of general population, the, this sort of quasi-Sephardi pronunciation was adopted. It didn't really take much to get it off the ground. Parenthetically, actually, Rabbi Jacobowitz in England, when he was chief rabbi, also tried to adopt some form of um, Israeli Sephardi pronunciation in the school systems. Um, he says, Rabbi Uziel says, when, however, this question was posed with regard to the question of prayers, reading the Torah and all matters which must be recited in the sacred tongue, Lashana Kodesh, we could not agree on our own to all that seemed aesthetic and rings nicely in our ear. We must find the solution to this question within the source of halacha. So in terms of schools, in terms of just speaking, it's not necessarily a halakhic matter per se. It's a communal sort of uh, discussion. It's something which has um, communal ramifications, something with, which has political ramifications, but it's not a core halakhic topic per se. But in terms of, of the language of prayer and the pronunciation of our prayers and reading the Torah and these things which are sacred and sanctified, so then there's going to be a, a serious need to address the fact of whether or not one can adopt this pronunciation. I think just actually at, at a very core level, I think one other thing to think about, and, and um, actually let, let's, we'll, we'll save this because he actually gets to this to some degree. Um, so he speaks about unity, not uniformity. Um, and he speaks about the way that we can try to address or, or perhaps could have addressed this topic in terms of halakhic decision-making. I would say, he says, in terms of this halakha, we haven't had any sort of rabbinic establishment, rabbinic body who's, who's, who's able to decide and establish this particular halakha. Um, so we, in terms of the halakha of reciting mincha and, and arvit, 
there's a discussion in terms of is it um, up until plaga mincha is mincha, and then after that is, is arvit, or is it the case that up till um, the sunset is mincha, and after that is arvit? That's a discussion, very big discussion. It comes up already in times of Mishnah. There it's discussed in terms of halakha. One can do either one. It's, it doesn't mean one can do either one, uh, but must establish for, for good what they do. It doesn't mean they need to establish which one in one day. Whole other discussion. But he uses this phraseology that there's no established pronunciation that one must use. Therefore, one can do what they do. And that's going to be perfectly acceptable. And, and this will be, spoiler alert, his decision and his um, outcome in terms of this, this halakha. But this is going to be his initial thought. And he says later on, He's not able to change his pronunciation um, from that which he's used to. So this is a someone who speaks modern Hebrew. The change of pronunciation, they're speaking in the street in a, a modern sort of uh, pronunciation. And then to change it to a, something which is um, for an Ashkenazi different than what they are used to. And even for a, 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 someone who's Sephardi, also to change it. Um, is, it's not something which is easy. Um, you know, any sort of thing which is a a um, any sort of prayer, etc. Someone is, if they've already been saying something for a long time, it's not easy to change it. Things will be very difficult, and he'll be very confused. You can't just change things so quickly. The people can and, and have established and, and developed the proper pronunciation um, in terms of, um, you know, not from a historical perspective per se, but they've established a pronunciation and, and let it be because they've established something as a whole community. Um, and, and, and from an intuitive perspective, because here he's not bringing sources per se, it's not easy for people to change the way they do things and just to go cold turkey and, and to change from their regular speech and speech patterns into one which is a specific special type of religious pronunciation. Two quick things on that. One of them is from an intuitive sense, it makes sense. Um, not only in terms of the notion of being confused, but also just in terms of, of, of language and how we use language. We should I think in an ideal sense, and people can, can quibble and, and disagree with this, but we should be speaking in a way to God in a natural, normal sort of way. This gets into issues in terms of should, should we be praying in biblical Hebrew? Should we be praying in rabbinic Hebrew? As Rabbi Yaakov Emden um, argues, should we perhaps be praying in a more modern idiom? And the same thing would be in terms of the pronunciation. Should we be using some sort of ritual pronunciation or should we be speaking to God as we speak and, and making it less ritualistic and liturgical and more just a natural flow of, of our words to speak to God. The other thing, and which is a corollary, is that Moshe Feinstein discusses a different case, but it has certain similarities in terms of what prayer rite should one use if they're in a congregation which uses a different prayer rite. Should they be praying in their regular and regularly established prayer rite? So a Sephardi should be using their own special Sephardi Nusach. Or should they be using that of the congregation? Again, a huge debate, but Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's opinion is that they should be using the prayer right of the congregation, except for the silent Amidah, unless they're really not able to do that because they've been so accustomed to the regular prayer and prayer right that they just can't do that. So here too, 
switching and changing one's pronunciation could be very difficult. And so therefore, one should, from an intuitive sense, even before getting to sources, be able to use that same pronunciation both for just communication between man and man, man and woman, and in terms of, of prayers. Another thing is in terms of what exactly is the issue here? What, what exactly is the problem and what can we learn from the rabbinic sources and how can we apply them to the case of pronunciation and specifically pronunciation between a modern idiom and that of, of the prayer text more broadly? So, Rabbi Uziel says, so again, in terms of Kriyachima, if one reads um, and, and is not exacting in the letters. So we'll see it in terms of this, but some debate in terms of what this means. Yatsa, one is one has fulfilled their obligation. There's a debate, but that is the halakha. What does it mean? Um, there's a, a interpretation. What does it mean? One should should you should teach them. It's broken up. It says no. Actually, it means that you're you're learning. Your teaching should be tam, should be pure. And so that means she attend revach ben devikim. You should put space between the the um, that which is glued together, that that which is comes close together. So for example, so that that could mean um, in certain interpretations that when you have letters which are the same between the end of one word and then the beginning of another, so make sure you separate those close uh, carefully. So what does that mean for for Abuziel? Though what what is a fundamental learning from this? So cut out a bunch in terms of the sources just for, for lack of time, but the fundamental meaning for him in terms of this is you can't just swallow letters and, and swallow words and, and be imprecise and, and, and have disfluencies in language. So if you're going to say and you're going to mispronounce things and, and you're going to mispronounce things from the regular pronunciation and say things in a different way, which is going to make it such that people will be confused and will actually error in terms of how they understand it. So as long as you're not doing things in a different way, and we'll see for him that means in a different way from the congregation, from the community, such that you're going to be led to be confused and people who hear you will be led to be confused. Barring that, you'll be able to use a pronunciation which is, which is standard and which even if it doesn't have all the different distinctions, differentiations between the letters and perhaps even between the vowels as well. So even abinishio, even lachatchila, you're able to adopt such a pronunciation because it's not going to be an issue of, of not being exacting. Rav Kook, and, and so he's responding to Rav Kook who discusses this, and he thinks, no, actually, if you're going to change your pronunciation from something which is exacting in terms of the pronunciation and going to change it in something which is less exacting, that's going to be a serious issue of but Rabbi Uziel disagrees and he said no if you're going to adopt the pronunciation which is standard and we'll, we'll see more of this later that's going to be fine because you're not going to lead people astray in terms of their understanding and people will understand perfectly well so it won't be a problem in terms of this I should say as well one thing I, I forgot to mention is that this debate between Rav Kook and Rav Uziel is um is a um, very long-standing debate to the extent that actually Rav Kook has a um, approbation in Rabbi Uziel's Mishpate um, Uziel, and he, he speaks, of course, very laudatorily about Rav Uziel, but he takes that opportunity to make sure he, he, he puts down a pen to paper that, you know, I got to make sure that I say, I really disagree with Rav Uziel in terms of this particular tissue. So serious dispute here, and uh, Rav Kook will not let it go.
So one of the things that, that Rev Uziel highlights is anyone who reads and is careful to read properly an accent to which he's accustomed. So as long as, again, you're establishing and adopting a standard pronunciation, which people understand, or which it chooses, or which he chooses, has fulfilled its obligation. It's standard, people understand it, you know, they're not being led astray. That is perfectly good. Anyone who's precise with regard to one accent or another because he believes that is correct and desirable pronunciation should not, only be, should not only not be punished, but is suitable to receive a word from God who does not withhold goodness from those who go in innocence. People are trying their best, they're doing what they're trying to do, and therefore don't try to make it that they are somehow sinning, somehow doing something wrong. If this is acceptable and it's all in, in line with the halakha and, and the sources as they stand. So, of course, one of the, the main sources one must address, besides for the Tanaitic and the other rabbinic sources, is Maimonides, the great eagle, or perhaps the great vulture, if one will try to understand Nesher in its proper historical context. But the um, Haram Bam says that in his commentary on the Mishnah, um, um, in terms of um, in terms of Diduk Biotiot, in terms of being exacting in the letters, what he says, he says, you need to just make sure you're, you're pronouncing things and saying things properly. In terms of reading, and here the context again is correct. So make sure you got the Shavana. So make sure that all these letters, everything is correct and proper. So all the, all the different sorts of vowels are pronounced properly. As you said before, in terms of, you know, if you got the same sound at the end of one word at the beginning of another, make sure that's pronounced properly and there's a space between them. For example, so make sure there's a space. There's parenthetically interesting discussions in terms of some of the other lists of the words. For example, um, some of the letters have a, a pe versus a fe, and, and it's discussed. So there's discussion in terms of to what degree the Begad Kefet letters were, were distinguished, but we'll leave that again for another opportunity. But nonetheless, what exactly is, um, is the import and the understanding of Maimonides? Because if we'll say that one really, from a halakhic perspective, must adopt all the different distinctions, so maybe there's a serious issue with modern Hebrew and, and its pronunciation. There's no distinction between Segol and, and the Tzere. There's no distinction between Kamatz and Patach. There's no distinction between, um, you know, um, Chet and Chaf. A lot of serious issues, Aleph and Ayin. What can we do with that? Is, is that totally going to be an issue? So Rabbi Uziel says that even according to Harambam, that will not be an issue. It's really just two fundamental things that the Rambam is trying to teach us. One of them, so, and I should say as well that when he records this halacha, he says, even actually in other languages, and the Ravad is other languages, what, what, what's the point of that? What's the need? Why? So, this serious and very interesting discussions around other languages, but just in terms of Hebrew, what is the fundamental principle? You can't have any sort of errors in terms of how one pronounces. Everything must be proper, clear, proper, said in its proper sort of way, its proper pronunciation. And then bet, uh, the second thing is you have to have proper pronunciation, proper letters in terms of how they're pronounced, proper pronunciation in terms of the vowels. So, I mean, he's, he's expanding and elaborating, but it's not to say necessarily that one must establish all of the different distinctions per se, 
the fundamental principle is really that one shouldn't speak in a, in a way which is mibubal, which is um, confusing, confused. That's the, that's the fundamental issue. Something which is just not exact thing and precise. Okay. So, you know, my, my, our um, young daughter is uh, you know, only a month old. She can't say anything, but other children, uh, when they get a bit older, start babbling. And so that's just babbling. So if you're just going to be babbling and just having no pronunciation, everything is an issue in terms of how you're saying it, that's the serious issue. But in terms of these, these precise distinctions, that's not an issue per se. So, so he has an expansion in terms of how he reads Maimonides. The question is, as we discussed in the beginning, is this an issue in terms of individual or is this an issue also in terms of the prayer leader? So is this is also in terms of the maybe only in terms of individual, they can do what they want in terms of how they say things. Maybe the, the prayer leader who's leading everyone in prayer, um, you know, certainly this would be more the case in a modern Spartak um, synagogue than Ashkenazi one who, you know, the, 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 they're, except for the, um, the Chazar uh, the Shatz, everything else is basically very ceremonial. But if you've got a, a congregation where the, the prayer leader really is leading people in saying the prayers, and in some cases, in some circumstances, actually having people fulfill obligation by that, maybe it's actually going to be more exacting and more stringent standards. Everyone is, is being perhaps um, fulfilling their obligation by this, this, this sort of um, um, again, parenthetically, there are interesting discussions in terms of this topic. So, so as we said, there, there are discussions in terms of, of whether must adopt the, the, and this is not Rabbi Uziel's topic here, but if one must adopt the, shlich, the pronunciation of the congregation. And so this is a, a big topic. So Rav, for example, Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach says that in a general case, you go to, he's an Ashkenazi, he goes to a Sephardic synagogue and he does a Sephardic wedding, for example, you adopt the Sephardic pronunciation. That is the correct thing to do. However, if you're in an Ashkenazi synagogue, says Rav Shlomo Zalman, and they adopt an Israeli pronunciation, for him, that's actually totally not a good thing that they did. And therefore, one should not adopt that pronunciation. Just a, 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 a tangential discussion in terms of what exactly a shliach tzibur should do. But for Rep Uziel, the question is, must a shliach tzibur adopt more stringent standards? And so in terms of this topic, let's zoom out a bit and just go to the locus classicus. That is the main, perhaps fundamental text in rabbinic literature, which discusses this very topic. It says there is a Braita which has this very discussion, or at least an instantiation of, of this topic. So one should not have these different sorts of people um, do the, um, I believe the Birkat Konim is the context there. They should not be leading the congregation any sort of way. Um, because they have a defective pronunciation, it seems like it's saying that they pronounce the ayin as an as an olive and olive as an ayin. So again, this is a, perhaps a strange case because we're all familiar um, with the loss of gutturals. So we see already in the rabbinic era that that the gutturals were not fully lost per se, but at least in certain locales, in certain instances, gutturals were went by the wayside. But here, actually, it's a switch, a switch between olive and ayin. So perhaps a strange thing going on here. But nonetheless. The Ramban and Maran, so both 
the Shulchan Aruch and the, the Rambam have a this as the halacha that these people should not ascend the Dukhan, they should not do the Birkat Koni because they have this defective pronunciation. So this seems to be an issue and throws a wrench in our whole discussion. Um, what can we say about this? Because it seems that they are, since they're not allowed because they don't have these distinctions between the letters. So are, are we lost? Are we at a standstill here? No, says Rabbi Usia. So if in all these different gatherings and school, etc., they've adopted a Sephardi, a quasi-Sephardi pronunciation, so in Israel, but also in the diaspora, they adopted this pronunciation. Therefore, due to this, one can have this person read and, and be the shlich tzibur because this is a, a common, commonly established pronunciation. And as we, as we said at the beginning, because people understand them. Again, for Rabbi Uziel, the core fundamental issue is that we've got understanding. People are, are, are adopting a pronunciation, an established pronunciation. People understand them. That's really fundamental. So in this case, you're in Israel, you're in the diaspora, people have adopted, have an understanding of this pronunciation, therefore, you're good to go. So again, as long as one has established the, the regularly established pronunciation and, and the way that people speak, that will be a-okay, even ab initio. And so therefore, one can adopt this not only as an individual, but also as someone who is the leader of the congregation. There's an approach which is related and has a, um, a certain spin, an angle, um, in the Talmud Yerushalmi. And it says, Ulamba Yerushalmi, there's a different text there. So one cannot have these people be the prayer leader. Lo chefanin, not people from chefa. So they had they, they pronounced the hair as a het, the ayin alfin, and they pronounced the ayin as an aleph. That's um, an issue. If their language is aruch, what exactly this means is a subject to dispute. And he has a discussion which is um, located in those three dots where he, he gives some of the different interpretations of the commentators. Um, but we'll, 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 we've cut that for, for, for time. But Rabbi Uziel says, What does it mean? That it's aruch, that it's established and clear from the people who hear it. They speak like him. This is the pronunciation. In terms of, of what we saw before, in terms of, um, of not having these people do birkakonim, lead the congregation, this really is all about people in other cities and having a different pronunciation, which is strange, could lead to confusion, and in some cases lead to blasphemy if they say things in an incorrect way. But if you're speaking in a way which is standard and, and established in the congregation, so here we're speaking, of course, in terms of modern Hebrew pronunciation, but could be expanded and I think could should be expanded to broader context in terms of, you know, in an Ashkenazi congregation with their established pronunciation 
We'll leave perhaps in terms of vowel of stress patterns could, could be different, but at least in terms of pronunciation and, and the way that the letters and the vowels are pronounced. So in terms of that, that is, a, that is okay based on, on, on this Yersham because Aruch is something which is, which is established and something which is understood by the congregation. And so they're pronouncing the letters and they're they're saying the vowels it's it's perfectly correct from a grammatical and from a strict pronunciation perspective because it is that of the place and and the language as we said in the beginning the pronunciation of modern hebrew is the language of the place the language of the place of the land of israel and as well in the gola in the diaspora in, in chutzaretz because it's so well established in terms of the conclusion, Uziel says, Every pronunciation goes back from an original source. There's a discussion actually in, um, in Mesorat Moshe, um, which is uh, collected um, sayings or um, halachic rulings of Rav Moshe Feinstein, which he allegedly said to his grandson. And there, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein says, it's like, who, who says there's an original pronunciation per se? I think from a historical perspective, there probably is an original pronunciation, but in terms of the halachic import of that, that one must reestablish and adopt only that pronunciation, Rabbi Uziel would fundamentally agree. And the people, they have come back and they've established a pronunciation, not necessarily the original. I mean, I don't think anyone really says that the Israeli pronunciation is original, but they've come back to that original root. They've unified themselves with this unified pronunciation, and they've come back to the land and to the Torah. And as we saw before, the people have a prophetic spirit in them. They are the disciples of the prophets because they have intuited the correct approach. Again, not necessarily the original pronunciation, but they've intuited a unified pronunciation, which is something which is correct and ideal based on Rabbi Uziel and his understanding of the sources, as well as his ideological framework, which establishes the Zionist enterprise as something which is, which is great and fundamental to him and the Jewish people. Coming back and establishing themselves is a beautiful thing. So, we can't establish a particular pronunciation at this point. There's not really the legal wherewithal to do so. Um, we can't say from a halachic perspective that using a different pronunciation from one's ancestors and one's teachers is fundamentally invalid, such that it does not allow one to fill their obligation. That cannot be said. Um, you cannot say that one would be violating this notion of straying from the teachings of one's mother. And so what we're seeing here is that um, fundamentally speaking, as it says in the second paragraph, it's not free us from dealing with this halakha in depth and determining in an assembly of rabbis and scholars the exact grammar of the language that is read, that it be unified in all synagogues and study halls. So again, unity and uniformity, some sort of unity is... is is good for him. It's it's something which is correct. It's something which he's looking for. We have missed the boat. And now we stand before a thing, a complaint from which we cannot go back. So, it's been established that we have this pronunciation. You know, should we? Could we perhaps uh, establish and adopt a more correct pronunciation from a historical perspective? Sure. 
But the facts on the ground are we have this as a pronunciation, again, based on certain perhaps romantic notions of what is the correct pronunciation from Ashkenazi sources looking um, longingly at their Sephardi brethren or at, their, at the Sephardi ancestors of yesteryears. But whatever it is, why ever it is, this is what it is, and that's the pronunciation. And therefore, it is fundamentally acceptable ab initio to adopt this pronunciation and no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so I think that if we just look at the three takeaways here, that there's not necessarily a clear-cut legal decision. So as he says, we're not able, perhaps, or we can't, and we haven't, and we don't um, decide and establish the, the correct pronunciation. We have facts on the ground. And then how do we deal with that? How do we say, OK, can we change the pronunciation based on that? Can we not? But so certain there is a, a, a sock here in terms of psika, there is a legal decision, but certain aspects of it perhaps are the way things are. And then how do we relate to that? How do we adopt practices which are related to the situation as it stands? And as we saw at the beginning, and as I said at the beginning, people speak languages. So we need to always think about the people involved. People, as Rev Uziel said, they have, they, they're accustomed to things. As, as we know from Maimonides, people can't just change easily in any sense of the word. Um, in terms of his most well-known example, we have the people, the Israelites in the desert. Would it fundamentally be the best for them to not sacrifice? Yes, from a philosophical perspective, sacrifice are not ideal. But these people are living in a Near Eastern context in which that is indeed the proper way to serve God. Therefore, you can't just say, all right, people, stop doing sacrifices. That is the correct thing to do. People are accustomed to what they do, and you can't just move them away from that. And that must be recognized. So for Maimonides, that's the whole system of sacrifices is established based on that principle. And here, too, in terms of Uziel, this is it's not the whole reason, but it is part of the reasoning. You can't change what people do so easily. So people, either they have adopted the speaking, um, they, they're speaking in Hebrew, and they have this pronunciation, so it's not easy for them to change it. And also, in terms of if they've already adopted this pronunciation for ritual and for prayer, it's not going to be easy for them to change to another pronunciation. And also, as we said, there is perhaps this notion of religious Zionist halakha. So it doesn't mean, per se, that, the, that religious Zionists have only one way to look at things. Rav Cook is the religious Zionist par excellence. His thought influenced so much of religious Zionism, even if today there are different approaches, there's a lot of pushback, a lot of other ways to think about Zionism. Nonetheless, Rav Cook is a Zionist. I mean, he's in some ways the founder of religious Zionism, again, in some ways and to some degree. Nonetheless, he has a very different approach to this. But I think they still have, have many related principles in terms of the, the importance of people coming to the land, the importance of, of really speaking and developing Hebrew. But how exactly that comes out in terms of a decision, that's really something which um, there's different approaches to these things. And I think that um, that really that, that's that's all I've got. I mean, just in terms of the, his sources, you know, these are it's not um, extensive in terms of what I. This, there's more source that he talks about, but he, um, he really goes in terms of the rabbinic sources. Has a discussion in terms of Maimonides, some of the commentaries around Maimonides, so the Ravad as well, some of the other Ashkenazi sources, um, later sort of Pietistic um, Ashkenazi sources, Sefer Hasidim, Nesagadullah, so other Sephardi approaches, more modern Rav Cook. So has a lot in terms of, of uh, historical perspective in terms of sources, but isn't um, in the style of, for example, Rabbi Avad Yosef, who of course, you know, was a great genius in terms of his reasoning, but his style is, is very much um, 
um, having many sources in terms of, of this way and that way, and then thinking about you know, how do these numbers work and how, how do we compare the different sides based on, on the numbers as well as reasoning. Here, it's not really about that. It's very much going from the sources, trying to understand them, trying to build and develop a, a particular framework based on the sources. That, that's what I've got um, today. I think uh, that sums up some of his thinking and some of what, he, what, what he's got to say, but would love to open up the conversation now and uh, you know, think about how we can try to address that um, at this juncture or later. Thank you. Thank you so much, as we say, and the Safara Deem uh, communities. Uh, if anybody has any questions, I uh, invite you to enter them in the chat. We got a bunch of questions already in the chat, so I'm going to throw them out there as we go. Uh, I will try to get to as many as we can in the time we have. Um, first, in your opinion, uh, by trying to unify and trying to establish a specific pronunciation, do you think that there has been brought more friction among, among certain Jewish groups? Uh, yeah, it, it probably has, unfortunately. I mean, I think. If we look, I mentioned briefly Rav Gorin, and so he has some discussion, I think, in terms of pronunciation, but his most well-known unifying sort of project, um, which is a corollary here, is in terms of the Nusach Achid, try to establish first for the Haggadah and then for the whole, really, uh, Tfilah, a unified um, Nusach. Sounds, sounds nice. I mean, I think we'd all, in some uh, ideal sense, perhaps want to have some sort of unification. But we also want to continue to sing the same songs that we did from, from our ancestors from when we were young. It's not so easy when push comes to shove. And so a lot of pushback from that. And I think here too, I mean, from an ideal sense, it is very nice and great to try to have one pronunciation. I think, yeah, probably it's, it's a nice way to unify the people, but it's, it's, not, it's not really um, a reality. People still have many different pronunciations and it's not so easy, you know, so as we said, uh, you know, so Rav Uziel has a very um, liberal approach here in terms of allowing um, this pronunciation as well as others. You know, he doesn't say one must adopt this. So even for him, it still allows for a proliferation of pronunciations. But for some of the others, they'll, they'll say, you know, Rav Cook would say, no, don't change the pronunciation. Rav Weiss from the Eda Haridit, no, don't, don't change the pronunciation. Rav Shlomo Zalman, um, you know, probably don't change the pronunciation. Maybe in certain cases do, but in other cases don't. So there's so much debate around it that you know we we don't have this this unity and unification in practice. I think in in, in some ironic way, this desire for unification in some ways leads perhaps to more friction. Another question here. Um, so do you find it better to do your uh, one tefillot of prayer in your in one's native language vernacular instead of uh, mispronouncing the Hebrew or Aramaic? Yeah, so that, that's definitely that's a very good question. I think that. It addresses a lot of different sorts of um, historical issues. Um, you know, so for example, in, in the early reform, I mean, one of the big things they were doing before a lot of the more egregious sorts of um, issues was uh, having the prayer in German um, since they were in Germany, and that it caused a lot of backlash. And even you know, in America as well, there is a, a very, um, uh, I think, quite popular prayer book called Minhag America. Um, and there's only a few halachot in the first page. Um, and one of them is you can pray in any language as rabbis say, but nonetheless, there, there were discussions certainly um, um, when the reform started to um, have the change in the, the prayer language, they, they said, well, you know, maybe in certain cases uh, as an individual, it's okay to pray in one's own language and, and it's very good to understand in one's own language. But from the, in the context of the communal setting, as far as I understand it, one should be praying um, in Hebrew. Um, and I think that, you know, and as we said as well, 
Um, so the term mispronunciation is, um, you know, is in the eyes of the beholder. As Rabbi Uziel said, it really depends on the congregation. In the congregation, um, and really anywhere these days, um, if one is adopting a Hebrew pronunciation, which is modern Israeli, um, that, that would be a-okay because you're, you're using an established pronunciation. If you're, um, you know, using some sort of pronunciation which you made up, that might be an issue in terms of, you know, uh, but, you know, what you should do in that case, you know, probably just try to practice. I mean, I think that you're doing your best, you know, God looks at the heart and, and tries to look at people and their inner intentions and, you know, we probably wouldn't be faulted for that sort of thing. Just we've got to all do our best. Yeah, I think that's how I'd answer that question. Another question here in the chat. Could you comment on the trend in Israel that the Nusach or uh, like function or tradition is a function of the Hazan of the cantor? Sometimes it's Ashkenazic, sometimes it's Sephardic. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that they, I, I don't know, I don't have much to comment on that because I, I haven't looked too much on the subject and it's, you know, definitely a tangential one to what we're discussing here, but I'll, um, I'll pull up and I can, I can send, uh, there's a very useful uh, Tishuvah Rabbi um, Pesach Feinhandler, who's a student of, um, Ashkenazi, of Ashkenazi descent, a student of, um, of El Yashiv. And he has a very good teshuvah. He really goes through all the different topics in terms of you know praying in a congregation with different nusach. I'm pretty sure he addresses through this topic. Um, and so it's definitely a practice which I've seen certainly in Shtibulach you know, uh, in Israel and beyond in terms of adopting whatever one wants to do. Um, but I'm not sure in terms of the propriety of this practice. I haven't seen too much in terms of whether or not that's something which is okay to do. But it's, it's a good question. I, I would really like to research that more. And what do you see as the long-term future of this kind of uh, approach to Dikduk and, and Hazanut in terms of the synagogue approach? Because as we see as communities change and, and the dynamics change, particularly in Israel, obviously, but also in the U.S., we see also different dynamics in terms of what the actual practice is versus what the, the communal, communal history is. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. I think that one of the things this does is it's, Besides for the specifics that he addressed in terms of, you know, modern Hebrew pronunciation and how it's been established both in Israel and beyond, but I think it helped us think about, all right, what are the different pronunciations? Because his fundamental principle really is, you know, we have to think, what are established pronunciations? And, and if they're established and, and if they're adopted by communities, then they're uh, ipso facto correct, you know, whatever that means. They're, they're okay for, from a halakhic perspective for prayer, kriyatatura, et cetera. So I think that's a very helpful framework. And I think that you know, that helps us think that, you know, if we're using a pronunciation, we don't need to be thinking, all right, you know, are we doing something wrong because we haven't been, we haven't adopted some sort of an, an, an original pronunciation. We haven't adopted the one which uh, Moshe Rabinu adopted. Um, so I think that's really that principle. I think it's fundamental one here. And I think as well, you know, that Rev, uh, to reiterate, I mean, Rev Uziel is addressing the topic of, of modern Hebrew pronunciation, but, you know, I think that with other pronunciations, since they're established, um, they also have their own import and, and they're, they're very important in terms of um, their communal standards. I think that's it for questions. We have a little few comments here and there, but um, if anybody has any questions, feel free to email us as well. We're happy to forward them along to Matthew. But I really want to take a moment and thank Matthew so much for his wonderful first she or with the Sephardic Jewish Brotherhood uh, for Sephardic Jewish Academy in partnership with Habura. God willing, it should be one of many more in the future. Um, and thank you all so much for joining us for part one of this new three-part series. We'll be back next week, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific time with part two, which will be by Rabbi Jack Cohen, 
We'll be talking about Rabbi, Mat, uh, Rabbi Matzbul Abadi um, and his Sephardic philosophies and approaches to respond to that. So please be sure to be back. Same link uh, uh, from this week. And we look forward to seeing you all, uh, God willing, again. Um, thank you again so much, Matthew. And uh, we'll see you all soon.